0: father we thank you for the church for your word for communion and as we reflect on it considering what your word says speak to us through your spirit in Jesus' name amen i mean i should have introduced myself apologies i'm montaz uh, according to jerry illustrious oh yes of course hey we're going to run kids church just now so j- you be suitable for that eh, uh, jingo no 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 <laughs> jingo or jenny in fact uh, after we finish i'll ask jingo and jenny to just share because that away for a wall so after communion we'll give you an opportunity just remind me jingo so don't forget uh, just because they're leaving us for a while and we'd love to hear from them as members of the church but uh, kids church is carrying on if you're young got little children you're welcome to take advantage of that you're also welcome to keep children with you. You're welcome to use a crèche, if that's helpful for children on the floor. Okay, thank you. Hey, shall we start? Okay, I'm Montez, and good to meet you. And we're a Bible-centered church. We work through the Bible, usually a book at a time, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. At the moment, we're doing a series on the Spirit, but I've just broken into that to do this uh, two-part mini-series on communion, so I haven't got my glasses today. So if I don't make any sense, you're probably thinking, "Well, there's nothing changed. It never makes sense anyway." <laughs> oh, oh, thank you. I'm not sure. If I may make worse sense if I wear yours, Jingo. Not because of you, just because on oh, my side it's weird. But let me let me start off. Okay, uh, let me start. Look, on the night that Jesus was betrayed, tried, and crucified. He took the time to have a meal with his disciples. It was the Passover meal. During it, he took some wine and some bread, and passing it around to his disciples, he likened it to his body and blood. Here's what he says. It's it's in the Gospel. Luke records the words for us. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table, and he said to them, I have eagerly desire to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until he finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After the supper, he took the cup, saying, and gave thanks and said, "This, Take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took the bread, gave thanks and broke it. And gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way after the supper he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood which is poured out for you. So what is it about? Why do we do it still? I mean, it was inaugurated 2,000 years ago. What does it carry on? What's the significance of it? And how should I participate in it? It's a question we always have to ask as Christians. What are we to do with what God says? How are we to apply it to our lives? I want to take you through this passage in two halves, second part in a month's time, so come back. But come every week in between as well, Teresa, okay? Right? Uh, so we're going to work through the passage Verse by verse. and Let me just show you what the Bible teaches. In the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. That's a strong thing to say. This, it's a supreme condemnation of an assembly of God's people. Your meetings do more harm than good. You see, instead of Holy Communion being something that united people, that pointed to Jesus' sacrificial death, that, that brought people together that to edified the church. Instead of all that, it became an opportunity for bragging rights. How big your worry was. And the distinction between, between your class and the others'. It became nothing more than a meeting of pagans, and it was harmful, rejected by God. Listen, for your meetings do more spiritual harm than good. And I think that's a reminder to us that just the fact that we're meeting is one of the most miss quoted verses in the new testament you'll know this and look i won't embarrass anybody and ask you what it means but when he says where two or three are gathered in my name there i am in the midst of them that is not a text for what we're doing this morning it's out of context completely misquoted over and over again the context of that let me ask us and we know what the context of those verses in matthew chapter chapter 18 are when two or three of you are gathered in my name, there I'm in the midst of you. What's the context? No, no, no good, good one. Um, uh, no, I don't think, that. Is it's that. There's something else? I'll give it to you. It's the context of a disciplinary case where someone is brought before the leadership of a church and Jesus promises them in that scenario that his presence abides with them so that they can make spiritual judgment on this case and whatever judgment they make is ratified by heaven. When we meet, Jesus' presence isn't always guaranteed. His presence, his spirit, comes amongst God's people when they meet in his name and when worship is conducted in a manner that pleases the God who created which one one of the things paul seems to be saying to the church in corinth "Oh, you may meet as a church but you stink and the spirit of jesus has no place in your presence. Here, let me show you what God says. If you think I'm using extreme language inappropriately, listen to this. This is taken straight from the pages of the Bible, Amos 5. Here's what God says about the Israelites when they gather to worship. When they say we're God's presence, He goes, I, listen to this, and you never get your kid to say this, would you? I hate. I despise. Your gatherings, that's God speaking. Do you hear that? I hate, I despise your religious feats. Look at this, I cannot stand your assemblies. Have you ever thought that God may think our gathering is a stench? Have you ever wondered why churches close down? Never the devil. The devil has never closed the church. How could he possibly get past Jesus to do that? There's only one person who closes church, and that's the one who opens them. And so here's the Corinth church. They're gathering together, but at a stench to God. Your meetings do more harm than good. Friends, when we come to corporate worship, can I encourage us that we come and that we're sure to search our hearts, prepare our hearts, come in true humility, with with heartfelt repentance, in genuine faith and in a deep sense of gratitude. I have no right. I have no right to be here. It's by the gracious invitation of Jesus, because of His death, and so that's the approach. That's what that's what draws the Spirit to the Church of God. There's no automatic presence of Jesus in a church. It comes as we come in a right spirit. Verse 18, in the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and to some extent, I believe it. It's a, very, it's a very contradiction of what church is. We are meant to be a united body, but here's a church so divided that it ceases to be a church. And Paul, remember, who started this church? Who planted it? Paul is his baby. And he says, look, look he's struggling to believe it. I mean, you know if you're a parent, when someone says something bad about your child, you're the last person to believe it, aren't you? Paul can hardly bring himself around to believe what this church that he planted, his baby, is becoming. There are divisions among you, and to some extent, I'm struggling, says Paul, to believe you. No doubt there have to be divisions, verse 19, among you to show you which of you have God's approval. As bad and ill and devilish as divisions are, can you see what he's saying in this case? What he's doing, at least in this case, is sifting the Corinthian church. It's, de- it's-, it's segregate- segregating true or genuine believers from unbelievers. It's showing which ones are genuine, which have God's approval. And here's one sad reality of churches that divide and fall out, that sometimes, at least, it can be a mechanism that God utilizes to sift a church, to demonstrate which ones really belong. In one John, in one of the letters of John, one of, one of the tests that, that we can give to whether or not someone's genuine in the faith, he says, they went out from us, they ceased to come regularly to church, they came, they went out from us because, does anyone know how the verse finishes? Because they did not really belong to, to us i mean that's not suggesting if you leave one sound evangelical church or a, or a bad one whatever to go to another one that's uh, not, it's not the concept uh, not, that's not the idea the idea is it's when we leave a sound bible teaching church to go nowhere that may if continued indefinitely prove we never really belonged to the church but God's grace, when we do belong to it, he does draw us back. But can I say this to you? If you are staying away long-term from church, you're in dangerous ground. And there's a church here, as well as several others around dotted all over Adelaide. Do you know, there's n- I sometimes hear, excuse me for the hyperbole, but I hear some pathetic language sometimes when people say, I couldn't find a good church. Like, there aren't any good churches in Adelaide. I don't even live here. I know there are. Don't ever try that one on me. It just doesn't work. (laughs) There There are sound churches in Adelaide, some very sound churches in Adelaide. We talked about Don Redding the other day, who's preached for us a sound church down south. There's one directly opposite us. No one go, okay? You're staying here. But there's a sound church directly opposite us, Trinity. Bible believing, Bible teaching. I have fellowship with the pastor great church but not yours okay <laughs> great church and so friends and and so division sometimes can show who really belongs to the church to faith verse 20 when you come together it's not the lord's supper you eat so they were meeting look we do, you know we have our fellowship events uh These Saturday things will be fellowship events. They had fellowship events in the early church called agape meals. Agape is the Greek word for love. Uh, The New Testament has got several, four of them. Uh, And uh, I won't do this now, but I personally don't think there's any difference between any of them. But nevertheless, uh, they had these meals called agape meals, love meals. And the idea was that you were expressing love. You came together, you shared your dinner. Except what was happening in Corinth when they were having these these agape meals? What were they doing? It was in the passage. Did you pick it up? They weren't sharing. They weren't sharing. It wasn't love meal. We'll come to it in a bit. But so that in this meal, this meal was meant to unite because in Jesus Christ, look, we've got different gender here, several different genders, two. Okay? Uh, yeah, yeah, I'm just making sure that you're listening. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, okay? Uh, and let me make that statement clear. God created man and female, male and female. And that's the way god created the world yes it goes bizarrely wrong because we live in a fallen world but that is god's structure for humanity so look look we've got diversity of gender of age lots of old people here lots of young people there okay we've got age diversity uh you can move Teresa. Uh, we, we have cultural diversity you've got a brit and you got convicts uh well you would be if you're in the other state. What Jesus says in His Word, and this is the important thing here, is that there is no division in the church because there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all, as far as Jesus is concerned, of equal value, dignity, and worth. And what the current church in their love meal was doing was turning and nullifying the spiritual value of that it had become so perverted that it no longer demonstrated what a church should be and overcurrent could have been those words famous i hate and despise your feasts finally paul then comes to communion and let me look at it with you so we've had the intro and it begins in verse 21 And this is the meal, for as you eat, each of you goes ahead without waiting for anyone else. One remains hungry, another gets drunk. What's happening at Corinth? What's going on at this agape meal? Yeah. What are they doing? So the the, the meal, what's going on? Just give the details. What's going on? They're sat for a meal? Yeah. Isn't that sharing. I mean, it's hard to imagine what's going on. Let me, do you fly? Does anybody fly? Uh, uh, when we came here, we tried those £10 POM tickets, but all, all the convicts in New South Wales took them. So, so we had to pay full price, okay? okay so, so, so we flew. And it's something about flying. If you've flown, and it's the only place I've ever seen it, you've got one body of people, haven't you? But the ones up front get caviar right? Seriously? And the ones at the back, where we sat? McDonald's. <laughs> right, okay, it's the only place in the world where you can see 1 Corinthians at work, okay? Uh, there's just a door, uh, to, so you can't smell the caviar, okay? But if you're sitting at the front, you can. You can even see them taking it in. And it's like, I'll have some of that, please. Right, okay? And so, you can, if you have flown, you can see something of what's going on here. You've got different classes of people in their own mind, different levels of wealth, different food types. So the wealthy were coming with whatever wealthy food they ate in those days. I suppose it wasn't caviar. They were turning up uh, and they were beginning to feast. They could afford wine. Wine wasn't cheap. They began the meal. Trouble was, if you were a servant, if you were poor, you were probably still cleaning their house when they left the building. And, And so you wouldn't get there till the meal was well on the way. By the time you got there, they would already eaten. They were now drinking. And because money wasn't an issue, they drank as much as they wanted. And so there was this division going on where some were being gluttonous and getting drunk. Others were barely getting something. There was covetousness, naturally, there would be one there when you watched your neighbor having a a T-bone steak whilst you were eating rump. Yeah, if you're lucky. Yeah, or stewing steak? Have you ever tried frying stewing steak? Stewing steak, It doesn't work very well. And so this is what's going on, friends. The whole thing has been turned upside down. And what should have been something that unites was separating. And Paul says, don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say? Shall I praise you? Certainly not. One thing that we must never do as Christian friends when we see injustice, irregularity, sinfulness, is we mustn't condone it. It's one of the reasons Paul is so angry in chapter 5 with this church, because there's a guy in that church who's sleeping with his stepmother, and you know what the church did about it? Someone tell me. Do you know what the church did about it? Nothing. Church discipline is a mark of the church. A church that does not operate in taking aside christians who are flagrantly sinning is ceasing to function as a church paul says don't think that i'm going to turn a blind eye to it and i'm certainly not going to praise you for it this is wrong it can't continue in the house of god what shall i do shall i praise you certainly not and so paul spells out afresh and then he goes look okay then look you band of rebels." Let me tell you how communion is supposed to be. That's what he does in chapter 13. You know, in chapter 13, when he says, love is patience, love is kind, and lists of all these things. He's not delivering a, a nice sermon. You have to understand the tone of chapter 13. It's this. It's this. Look, love is kind, okay? <laughs> Seriously, that's the tone of chapter 13. He's angry. He's saying, look, you don't know what love is. This is what it is. It's patient. Okay? Yeah, I'm not demonstrating much of that, am I? So, so in, in, chapter, in chapter 11, he's doing the same thing. Okay, then, you rebels, here it is. Here's what it's meant to be like. And then he explains, listen to this, it's lovely. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. We'll be doing verse 25 next time. It's just such powerful S- uh, symbolism between verse 25 and Exodus 24 that Morag read for us. But for now, look, the, the book of Corinthians, just in case you're thinking, you know, I'm standing up here getting drunk whilst you're coveting, well, hard look. <laughs> 1 Corinthians was amongst the earliest New Testament writings. Perhaps the first written within 20 years of Jesus' death. It's the first writings to encapsulate Jesus' words. The first written record in the history of the church where someone actually logged Jesus' precise words. These words, this is my body. It's, It's the first account of an event written down of jesus's uh, and of, of, of jesus's life and what he did it's the earliest record we have of something from jesus's life the gospels followed one corinthians and so in it, paul is stating that he has received this information listen to it. how did he receive it for i received from the lord what I passed on to you. What's Paul suggesting about? See, a, a lot of information within the New Testament church was passed on from one uh, church group to another, but what's Paul saying about how he received this particular instruction about communion? What's his, uh, next one, please. What's he saying about how he received them? Next one, please. The, uh, the top of verse 23. How did he receive them? Hmm. Paul had many incidences of a one-on-one with Jesus. We emphasize in our home group on Thursday the importance and the centrality of living by the Word, of having a life anchored in the Word. But we're never doing that. We By doing that, we're never saying, we're not saying that God cannot, cannot uh, appear to a person in a revelation, in a vision, You've only got to read the thousands of Muslim conversion stories from out of Iran to know that Jesus can give give some kind of vision of himself. we, We don't want to deny that. But we do want to say that Jesus primarily speaks through his word. But in the case of Paul, at least an apostle, Paul had not just visions. I think it's important to remember the distinction here. As an apostle, Paul didn't just have visions of Jesus, which is generally what happens today when people see images of him. What did Paul have? An actual, real, tangible encounter with the risen Jesus. There's episodes in Acts when, 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 when Luke writes that Jesus stood with Paul. I'm not sure if that happens today. I don't want to say yay or nay. But I want to suggest that the Apostle Paul certainly had actual physical visitations of Jesus. And it was during these times that he was given this information from Jesus' lips, as it were, for... Uh, for, for, for For he received the information from the Lord. And this is what he received. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed. So still commentary, not the words of Jesus yet. On the night he was betrayed, took bread. It's hard to imagine, but the most poignant meal that Jesus celebrated with his disciples, instituting the Lord's Supper, was on a night where one of those closest to him. And again, we've done this in our series on the spirit. And here's what he says. Let me ask you. Uh, This disciple is Judas, one of the ones who's closest to him. What kind of things had Judas done during the three years he was with Jesus? He was a treasurer? treasurer? That was his job. What what other things did he do? He did miracles. He was sent out with the 12 and the 72. He cast out demons. He healed the sick. Okay? Yet he was a devil. We said this last week, just because you can do miracles or prophesy, wow, so could Judas. So could Judas. It's not a mark of our spirituality. It wasn't for Corinth, and it isn't today. We're not saying those things are not spiritual and can't be done by the Spirit. They certainly can, but they can be done by another Spirit too. And, and Judas, for Judas, we assume Judas was doing it through Jesus' spirit, no doubt. But nevertheless, he shows that we can do something even through Jesus' spirit, something other like the miraculous and be outside of the faith. Judas betrayed the very man who empowered him to serve him miraculously. He betrayed him. On the night that Jesus was, uh, on, on that night, he was betrayed. And on that very night, we're told he took bread And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body. Coming to Jesus' practice, we see it in Luke 9. Look what he does there when he takes the five loaves and two fish. Looking up towards heaven, he gave thanks. Why do we give thanks? I was at a meal yesterday with with a pastor. And uh, he gave thanks in the most lovely way. We we, we had a meal, but he says, Lord, as we eat this meal in, in anticipation of when we will have that feast in the kingdom of God with you. Have you ever thought about that? Every time you eat a meal, you're anticipating the feast. If you don't like eating, heaven's not for you because there's a feast. I don't think that's a a problem from anybody here, is it? (laughs) But but, but look, every time we eat together, it's anticipating the meal, especially when we eat this meal. And so Jesus, when he gives thanks, this will be his posture. I don't know if you've ever given thanks like this. His posture would have been to have his arms open and to be looking to heaven And he would give thanks to God using these words. Blessed art thou, O Lord. And then he would proceed into giving thanks for what he was about to eat. Can I encourage you? Don't ever be ashamed. In McDonald's, you are thinking I'll never go there. Good on you. I love your vouchers. You're hungry. Don't ever be ashamed of Jesus and to thank him for the food you're about to receive. Wouldn't it be a shameful thing to stand beside his cross and to think I was too embarrassed to let those people know I'm a follower of Jesus. Jesus gives thanks for the bread, says Paul. And then, and then says these words, and these words cause division in the, in the history of the church. This is my body. It's led to what the Roman Catholic Church calls transubstantiation. It's a doctrine where they believe. And this is something we have to... I'm going to say this to you, friends. I hope you understand this. We do not have spiritual fellowship with the Catholic Church. What I mean by that is we do not regard them as fellow believers insofar as they hold to Catholic doctrine. Because Catholic doctrine teaches that during communion an act called transubstantiation the 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 bread and the wine translate and become the actual body and blood of the lord jesus christ it's why uh, uh, the the priest won't allow anybody to touch it in case you spill the blood of jesus and so the the mass as it is they believe that jesus has been recrucified crucified as it is we would argue that that is sub-christian I have to say this, and I'm sorry if this offends you, but that act, that practice within the Catholic Church is sub-Christian, and I think it's taken the words way too far. Here's what Leo Morris, a theologian, writes in context, that there is a very real sense, here's a better way of understanding what Jesus meant by saying, this is my body. Here's what Leo Morris comments, there is a very real gift of the Savior in the sacrament, nonetheless real for being essentially spiritual can you see what he's saying he's saying there is in a sense a presence of jesus but not that these things are becoming anything physically or or, or Jesus in any sense, there's there's a sense of his presence, although it's only spiritual. The sacrament is a medium of communion with the body and the blood of Christ. It's it's the means of connecting with Jesus, a real means whereby faith appropriates the blessing. It comes with faith. Blessing comes, which flows from the glorified Christ in virtue of his death. What we're saying, friends, is this does not become Jesus' body and blood. That is sub-Christian. Jesus was crucified once and for all, says the writers of the Hebrews. But what I don't want to say, that it's just bread. I don't want to say that. It's just bread. Because that licenses me to treat it with disregard. And I think it's undoing Jesus' significance when he says, this is my body. To say it becomes his body is going too far. But I think the least we can say is that This wine and this bread during communion in an act of worship represents in a weighty, significant manner uh, the body of the presence of Jesus. Yes. There's something very sacred about it. This is not just another meal. It's not merely remembering. It's really remembering. There's weight to it. Jesus continues, which is for you. It's vicarious. I know you know this, but Jesus didn't die for his own sins. It's for you. It's vicarious. It's on our behalf. It's, it's Which is for you. And then, do this in remembrance of me. Do this is present, continuous tense. It means it's a lasting ordinance. We keep doing it. We will do this till he returns. We will never cease from doing it. It's an act of remembering Jesus. And not just remembering, remembering his life. We are called to do that. But this act is particularly to remember his death. Here's what Craig Bloomberg writes. Each time the Corinthians ate the bread of the Lord's Supper, they should have recalled his death and acted in ways consistent with Christ's immeasurable self-giving and grace on their behalf. You're absolutely fine to keep him in, uh, and he's no distraction to me whatsoever. I'm being serious. We, I reiterate, I said this over and over again, we love children, and we can put up with a bit of noise, even from you, David. Okay, But here's the point. Each time the Corinthians ate the bread of the Lord's Supper, they should have recalled his death. Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. The most significant thing about this meal, friends, we have to bring to our remembrance our attention. This is Jesus' death that we're looking at. Let me show you. What we're meant to take from this symbolism. So I wonder if sometimes we lose it. It's so domesticated, isn't it? Look at it. Lovely neat plastic cups and nice varnished tray and, and glistening tray and, well, well you know, diced uh, bread. It's, it's too clinical. It misses the point. almost. When Jesus took that bread, and I'm going to do it later when we break communion. What did he do to it? It's a very significant act. He he, he took the bread. What did he do to it? Broke it. Why? Shares? Yeah, yeah. Thank you. It's got to be shared. But something even in anticipation of the sharing, because he was broken. Literally, broken. I want to show. You. I want to give you a graphical. This 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 is not. This is not PG rated okay so, but you know if you don't want to listen you're welcome to leave but I'm going to give you a graphical presentation of what this meant for Jesus crucifixion was invented to terminate life it was exclusively designed to terminate life and it was designed to do it in the most humiliating and agonizing way. The reason it was invented, it was to cause maximum humiliation and suffering. It was designed that, that way. It was first prepped, the crucifixion victim was first prepped by whipping. Not with a leather whip but with a whip that was infested with metal and bones. You may, have, you may know the cat of nine uh, tails. It had nine parts to it, infested with bones and metal. It was designed so that when it, when it struck an individual at speed, it would cause and attract blood to come to the surface of the, of the skin. It drew blood so that when it was retracted, and the bones tore off the flesh, the blood that had gone to the surface would gush out profusely. It was designed to bring maximum loss of blood so that the victim was fatigued and heading toward certain death. Having whipped the person to almost death, he was then forced to carry his cross, literally, or carry at least one member of the cross, to the place of execution in jesus's case he was so fatigued from this immense loss of blood that he was much closer to death than perhaps some of the other victims and needed help by simon from cyrene a place in libya he was who was forced to carry the cross he needed help to get to his place of execution when jesus said on the cross he thirst it wasn't anything to do with the ambient temperature of his environment. It was to do with thirst, and we have medics here, you know more than me. It was the fact that he was losing blood, red cells at such a rate that they were drawing on the supply levels of water in his body to sustain life, and that's what was causing thirst. It wasn't the heat, it was the sheer loss of blood. When he finally got to the place of execution, he'd be thrown to the floor and nails five to seven inches long will be driven through the nerves, the main nerve of the body with excruciating pain in both his arms and then through his feet. He will then be dropped, the cross having been nailed to it will be dropped into his stand in the ground causing the dislocation of the shoulder bones, stretching the arms by at least six inches, an excruciating position to be in, it's the position of exhaling, in that position it was impossible to take a breath, you would die immediately, weren't it for, weren't it enough for, the body's, the body's reaction or instincts of survive, and that instinct moved the victim of crucifixion to force themselves on the nails in the feet in an upward position to take one gasp of breath in agony before falling down again onto the arms to exhale. That's how a victim on the cross breathed and some victims could do that for days. Such was the the power of instincts to survive. So Jesus did this over and over and over and over again for the six hours of the cross. He did it with his back, already exposed, the flesh already exposed, now rubbing against the coarse wood of the vertical member of the cross, every breath he took. And after six long hours of agony, Jesus' life was extinguished. And all that took place If that wasn't humiliating enough when the victim was completely defrocked and hung there naked to complete the humiliation when Jesus says those words and breaks the bread and says do this in remembrance of me he's asking us to remember The detail of his death. The manner in which he died. When we consider the agony and the humiliation. And finally the death of our Lord on the cross. It gives a new perspective. To the communion meal. Friends, it is the most sacred Christian institute. Because it's remembering the most sacred act in human history the excruciating death of god i want to say to you friends this is not a celebration we want to be reveling in this me- communion meal this is not a celebration it's a remembrance of the death of god's son it's sacred it's to be done soberly, reflectively. Is to be done in awe and with reverence. It demands that I consider afresh my sin because it was my sin. Montessi sins and Jim's sins and, 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 uh, and your sin, Sarah, that did that to him. It's why it happened. And so when we come to communion, the least we must do, we must consider soberly, in a reflective manner, with great mourning, the gravity of my sins present continuous, as well as the past. It means there must be contrition. There must be confession, privately. And there must be a vow. You see, this is a covenant renewing meal. There must be vows that we make before God before you leave this meal whereby we promise him that we will tackle that sin and we'll fight it and resist it for the sake of the cross. It's the most sacred and sober meal or activity that the Christian can enter on. And so, friends, may we never... Never be chit-chatting about the weather or planning tomorrow's activity as these emblems reach us. It's why when I do it shortly with you, we'll ask for complete silence. We'll ask for people's heads to be bowed. We'll ask for people to think seriously about where they stand with Jesus but the weight of what he did for us before we take hold of those emblems. The most sacred meal a Christian partakes in. It's why Paul was so critical of Corinth. They were making a mockery of Jesus' agony. May we never be found eating or drinking the bread and the wine in an unworthy manner we'll look at more of that next time and making a mockery of the torture of God's son Paul writes for receiving the Lord what I also passed on to you the Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks he broke it and said this is my body which is for you do this in remembrance of me and we look at these verses next time verse 25 in the same way after the supper he took the cup saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Christian, remember him. Remember him in sobriety. Remember him for what he did. Remember the scale and the gravity of the cross. Remember our sins whilst we're doing it. Remember that he did this though he's God. Remember him. Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me.